hope you're having a good weekend. If I've not met you, if I've not met you, my name is Luke. It's, it's good to have you here to those of you who are guests and and listen, I, I, I'm excited about this passage today, so we're going to jump right in. But if you have a Bible or an app that you use, turn to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. We're actually going to finish chapter 1 of a series that we're freshly in called Coram Deo. Okay? Um, Coram Deo is basically our march through the book of Ephesians, passage by passage. This is our third sermon in that series, so we're very fresh into it. Quorum, if you're unfamiliar with the term, just to remind some of you, quorum just means face-to-face, and deo means God. So what we're talking about is a relationship that we share with God where we are face-to-face in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. And Paul does a great job in the book of Ephesians just in discussing this. And so we're going to start in chapter 15 today. This is going to be the passage that does the work for us and shows us Jesus much more clearly. And this is what Paul says to the church of Ephesus. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he was raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named." Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is a fascinating passage to me, right? And, and, you know, before we jump in, I just want to make an interesting observation because we have some students in here about the idea of Wikipedia and how that's going to help us with this passage. Not that we're going to use Wikipedia for this passage, but Wikipedia is something that wasn't really around when I was in college. I graduated in 1999 is when I graduated from college, right? And Wikipedia started in 2001. So back then, it wasn't really a controversy whether it was okay to use Wikipedia as a citation or a resource in a paper that you were going to do in college. Today it is. And it is interesting how Wikipedia made it when the contenders like Encyclopedia Britannica or Microsoft Encarta, y'all remember that? Whenever they tried to do something really cool and it just didn't work out, but Wikipedia makes it. And I think that's partly because it is user-resourced. You have the ability to go on and contribute to that. But even today, I mean, if you were to type anything into a search bar, second or third or even fourth in the listing of results will be a Wikipedia entry on whatever it is that you put in there. If it shows you anything, it shows you that we have a vast amount of information at our fingerprint or our fingertip. We have a lot available to us. You could learn about anything today 
off of your phone and anything attached to anything because of the blue words in Wikipedia. Because if you click on those, you go through a rabbit hole, don't you? And you end up in another article over here. And you could clip, clip on, a, on a blue word there and you could end up in a totally different article. They actually have a word for this. It's called Wikipedia syndrome. Did you know that? That you could go to Wikipedia to look up something and end up in a very, very different area of the internet just by clicking on blue links. I found this true because not too long ago, I remember going to Wikipedia and looking at a chemist that was highly influential in the 1800s, only to realize that a movie had been made about this chemist down at the bottom. So, of course, I clicked on the link. Or clicked on the link. And when I got to this new page, I realized that there was a director of this movie that I recognized his name. So I clicked on that name. And the reason I remember is because his brother was a punter in the NFL. Right? Which begs the question, who's the greatest punter of all time in the NFL, right? Naturally. So I go to that Wikipedia page and look and saw who the greatest punters were, and then I recognized one of the influential stadiums. Stadiums. And I thought to myself, what is the biggest stadium in the United States? So then I click on that link and I end up on another page, and then I ask myself the question that you're asking, I know right now, what kind of city holds a stadium that big? Like, how many people need to live there to resource a stadium of that size? So I go to Wikipedia looking to find anything I could find on a chemist in the 1800s, and I walk away with the knowledge that Ann Arbor has about 150,000 people that live in it. <laughs> rabbit holes, touching rabbit holes, touching more rabbit holes. The truth is, is we love to master subjects. We love to master knowledge, but knowing, as Paul is going to show us today, is not always knowing. Knowing things is not knowledge, as odd as that sounds. I mean, you can know everything there is to know about a person and not know that person. I mean, give me the right equipment. I could take a human being and I could calculate their exact weight, their fat percentage, their visceral organ weight, their bone density, I could calculate probably down to the ounce how much calcium and carbon and phosphorus is in that body. I could talk to their doctors about their medical history. I could go to their Facebook and their Instagram, their Twitter accounts, and I could scan everything that they'd ever typed into it. I could interview their friends, their family. I could write a biography on that person and still never know that person. Still never know them. You know, just like last week's passage that we looked at, and I think it was verses 3 through 14, this one's unique, just like last week, in the fact that that was all one sentence in the Greek that we read. That was all one sentence. You should be getting the feeling by this point in a very, very short series that Paul has a lot to say, and he's trying to cram it into as many, I mean, just as short amount of time as possible. He's probably barely stopping to take a breath. But the big idea of this passage is that Paul asks God to open the eyes of their heart so that they would see clearly, that their, that their heart would be enlightened, that they would have view of God. That's the big idea. Did you know that your heart has eyes? And that's what Paul's praying for. Paul's hope is that you gain a much greater knowledge of God. And, and listen, when I say the word knowledge, some of you already know this, but it's not the same way that we use the word knowledge today. It's a different Greek understructure. So if I wanted to know something today, I could go to YouTube and I could accumulate factoids and, and knowledge that will help me get something done. But what Paul is speaking to here is more of a complete and holistic knowledge, actually an experiential knowledge. It's very different. Paul wanted his readers to become close friends with God. Close friends. He wanted their hearts to burn with fire. 
This is a bit of a difficult subject for many of us. I mean, just friendship with God can be a difficult subject. I mean, God is many things to many people, but very few of us look at him as a good friend. Maybe a distant hall monitor or a stern father or an employer or a school principal or, or something that requires there be some distance and proximity between us and God, but not friend. Friend actually almost feels and seems inappropriate, like he's too close, like we're too familiar with God. But Jesus says something very beautiful in John 15 that should help us regarding that. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Friends, because we're sharing things. Not like a servant, but like friends. Listen, if you're in Christ today, if you're a Christian, a son or a daughter of the king, God considers you a friend. I mean, just let that sit for a minute. You're a friend. He sees you as a friend. But friendship has to be nurtured and developed, doesn't it? I think one thing we all know is that friendships don't pause very well. They don't sit still very well. They, they either have to be nurtured and developed or they kind of atrophy and retreat a little bit, right? We know this because, man, when you're close to somebody, maybe you've done life with them deeply or for a long time, they're your best friend and then they move off, right? That's that, that thing that happens when they move off. Maybe it's a good reason, but for whatever reason, you just you, you lose a little bit of touch, but then you reunite. Maybe they came back to town. Maybe you went and visited them. You feel, you feel like you're picking up where you left off. In fact, we even use that passage sometimes. We even use that verbiage. I feel like we could pick up where we left off. But we all know that never really happens, right? You never really just pick up where you left off. You're having to catch them up on how the kids are doing the last six months or, or that thing that you went through that they weren't there to go through with you. The very fact that you're having to catch them up shows that things have retreated, right? Nothing ever picks up where it left off. Friendships don't pause. You're either building or it's retreating. We all know that. We don't think about it often, but we do know it. Now, what I want you to remember about this particular church, now we talked about it two weeks ago in week one. This is the very church that Jesus speaks to in Ephesians 2, whenever he says, you guys have abandoned your first love. Same church, right? Like a marriage that has gone cold. It started off very vibrant, but now it's just under-nurtured and under-resourced and underdeveloped. And so Paul says, I'm going to pray that your heart has eyes that are open, which is a mixed metaphor for us. All it, all it means is that our, our affections are awakened and fixed on God. That's what the Puritans would call visio dei, just Latin for view of God, that our hearts would see clearly, that we would have a face-to-face -face relationship, a friendship with God. And we actually have passages in the Bible that show this happening. And I think the most vibrant one for us that could be helpful is in Luke 24. And this is where Jesus is walking with some disciples and they don't know it's Jesus, right? It's a different sermon. It's a fun sermon to preach, but they don't know it's Jesus until they do. It happens like this in verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? 
That's fascinating. You know, listen, as, as a pastor who prays for this city and as a pastor who prays for you and for your neighbors, I'm resolved, I'm pretty convicted that the most helpful church to this city is the one who has awakened affections, where our hearts are burning in our chest. Knowledge, not just from facts about God, but derived from experience, from a face-to-face friendship and relationship with the one who apprehended us first. You know, when I was searching for Jesus back as a college student, I would say probably even the one or two years after I became a Christian in college, I couldn't care less about your facts. I could always read a book or get a better study Bible. I could learn facts. You could pick up facts along the way. Not to say it's not important. It's just to say that that's not what I was really looking for. I wanted to know, how did you get where you are as a Christian? I wanted other Christians to tell me that I wasn't crazy for having the thoughts I was having or the fears I was having. I wanted to know about your scars as a Christian. How did you lose that child and still love Jesus like you love now? I mean, how are you trusting God after you got that cancer diagnosis? What about your marriage that's breaking up right now? How are you doing this? That's what I wanted to know. That's that's not what you're going to learn in a factoid. You need to talk to someone who's been in deep experience. So I think Paul is touching something of deep missional value in this passage as well, because not only is the most satisfying place for you and me to be sitting at the feet of Jesus and looking deeply in his eyes as a friend, but it's actually important for your neighbor that you're doing that, that you're developing an experiential relationship with God, because those are going to be the questions that they're going to ask you. You know, your satisfaction in this life, on this planet, it's going to depend really on your friendship with God. If you're unsatisfied with your life right now, wherever you're at in life, probably don't have a real deep relationship with God. I'm not saying that you don't have it easy so you don't have a good relationship with God. I'm saying if you're not satisfied. You know, John 17, we see Jesus speaking to this to a different level. He says, and this is eternal life, as he's praying to his Father, that they know you. Now that's the same word that we're exploring today, epinosis. It's the same, it's an experiential, holistic knowledge. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now this is where it gets interesting to me as a passage, because up until this point, and we saw two weeks ago he greeted them, and we saw how important a greeting was. Last week we saw this lyrical praise, it was all one sentence, and we saw how valuable that was, but now he's starting this letter off on the foot by telling them how he is praying for them. Hey listen, that's an excellent practice to get into, by the way. Whenever you feel like the Holy Spirit is moving you to pray specifically something for somebody else, it is good practice to let them know. Fire off a text, phone call, email, say, hey, man, I was just praying the other day. Hey, you know, I was just thinking about you the other day, and I was moved to pray about this. Just wanted to let you know. It's encouraging. It's encouraging. When I get those text messages or emails, I'm encouraged. I do it every time. As far as I can think about it, I do it to others as well. It's probably a different sermon, but I can see Paul doing it here. But when he's doing it here, it does provoke a pretty decent question. Why is he praying for this? Why these things? That's, what, that's what's fascinating me. He's praying for a couple big primary things. He's praying for a deep relationship where their affections are awakened, that their heart has eyes. Right? Two, he's praying that they see hope. And three, that they understand the power that has been given them. But why not things like provision? Financial provision, because they're struggling. Why not favor? 
because they're going through pretty decent persecution. What about skill and gifting to reach the lost? What about more baptisms or harmony with the staff and the leadership? What about peace? What about rest? Why isn't he praying for those things? I think the answer is all wrapped up in the context, though. Remember the context of the readers. They are hungry for theological accuracy, not so hungry for experiential love. This is a church that's drifting away from enchantment. They're drifting away from that first love. That's why Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So theologically, this church is locked in. Experientially, a little bit of a vacuum. A little bit of a vacuum. Love for God is a hypothetical thing for this church. I think some of us get that in this room, right? Because you see the love that other people have for Jesus and you see that their heart is on fire. You see that they have this deep, passionate connection, a face-to-face Coram Deo relationship. But for you, it's something that you're trying to get to or it's something that you used to have. It's something that you feel a little guilty that you don't currently have, but it's still hypothetical. I mean, this is one of the biggest reasons I've been so excited to go through this book it might as well be written just to the church of greater Knoxville, right? Knox Visions. You see what I just did? I changed it up. It should be written to me. It should be written to you. This drift from enchantment, it's, it's a natural thing for us to go to. It's actually supernatural to be able to do this, as we're going to talk about, to be able to awaken your heart and see Jesus clearly and see what God has done for us in a, in a magnificent way that draws our affections to him. It's natural for us to veer, though. We are prone to wander, as the hymn says, right? And you know this. This is why you have seasons. Good seasons and dry seasons. Rich seasons and kind of colder, more mechanical ones. And it doesn't matter whether you're suffering or whether you're celebrating. I mean, we all know what it feels like to do those things where we feel close to God, like he's carrying us through it, and when we're very far from God. I think this is also why we can go through the correct motions incorrectly, right? And no one may even notice around us. You might be doing all the right things, but with a cold heart in your chest. This is something that we see all the time. You might be cracking open the Bible every day, praying every day, volunteering, writing generous sacrificial checks, going to community group. You're even bringing salsa and chips to the community group. Thank you for that, right? You might even be in a deep DNA relationship with others in that community group. You might, be, you might be telling people about Jesus, and at the same time, there's nothing in your chest that's on fire. You don't feel like you're a friend of God, and it's going to be difficult for people around you to even see this. You know, we need a lot of things as a church, and you need us as your pastors to be praying for many things for you. But i got to agree with Paul here. What I hope for most and pray for most, especially in this season, is that your hearts are on fire and that you know God. Not know about God. Not know how to do things for God. But know God experientially. So why do we drift? I mean, if this place at the feet of Jesus, eye to eye, this Coram Deo living, if it's so spectacular... And and, and, in satisfying, then why do we get up and leave? Why do we drift? I think the very easy answer, and it's almost too easy, is that we are tempted as people to carry a very high view of self and a very low view of God. And this can manifest in very simple ways. For instance, a life of no prayer. I mean, if you struggle with prayer and you're just not a person that prays very often, 
Whether you're saying it or not, you're counting on your own wisdom and strength and power. You have a very low view of what God can do, his majesty in your life, and a very high view of yourself. And this can be imperceptible to the people around you because you might even look like you're leading a very productive life and you're getting a lot done, right? You could be moral looking and no relationship with God that's growing. I think there's millions of people, millions and millions of people that look upstanding and they're doing upstanding things, even upstanding things in the name of Jesus. Yet there's no knowledge of God. They know about God, but there's no knowledge of God. Here's a fascinating, yet creepy, crazy, and scary passage for me, and it's Matthew 7.22. This is Jesus, and he's speaking, and he says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Same word, no, by the way, same word. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, listen, that's a weighty passage right there. I've been in the ministry for almost 20 years, or right at 20 years now. I have seen demons come out of people, right? Not, not like the demon pop out of somebody, but I've seen the moment of that happening. And it's scary, and it's exhilarating all at the same time. I remember the first time I ever saw it as a young man, and I was somewhere in between what did just happen, and are we all safe, I think someone needs to get a trash can. I don't know if I'm buying this. I think this is real. Now I don't. I have questions. You know, I was, I was just a mixed bag of what's going on right now. But it was exhilarating to see that person grow and explode into just discipleship, become a Christian. It was, it was fascinating. I just had no category for it. I had no category for such a vivid thing to happen right in front of my eyes. And I've seen mighty works of God happen where the only way I could catalog it is under miracle. I've seen these things happen. High five moments where people see freedom and Jesus' fame is spread. Disciples are made. Leaders are launched. And it just seems impossible that things like that can happen through folks that have zero knowledge of God. Consider that. That's what he's saying. Zero knowledge of God. I mean, Jesus is describing the cultural Christian here. Not some heretical wolf that has like a secret devil statue in his basement, hope that nobody sees and blows his cover. We're just talking about somebody that has no experiential knowledge of God, just knows a lot about or has a set of know-hows. That's what he's talking. I mean, Knoxville, listen, Knoxville's ground zero for this, by the way. I mean, the cultural Christian is our main demographic here. It is our every person. This is who we deal with. It's the main reason we wanted to plant a church here because it is ripe for spiritual awakening. It is ripe for revival, even in this town of a billion churches. Because here's the core doctrine for the cultural Christian. God is not necessary for me to succeed. That's the core doctrine. God's not necessary. He's okay, he may be helpful, but he's not necessary for me to be satisfied. I can find other things to be satisfied. He's good, I'll go to church, I get it, I like Jesus, but I'm semi-sufficient or self-sufficient without him. Now we know better than to just say that, right? No one just says that, but we will say it with our calendar. We will say it with our dreams. We will say it with what 
bores us. We will say it with what excites us. We will say it with how we write checks. We will say it in very many, a lot of ways, how we raise our kids, how we handle our marriages. But make no mistake, Jesus did not let all of his blood out on a hill, a hill of criminals outside the city limits so that we could be successful and produce a bunch on this world looking morally upright yet with a heart that is cold with closed eyes. Did not. He did not do that. He did not die on the cross and burst from a tomb just so we could have an upstanding performance and have a lot of knowledge about him. Did not. I'm actually resolved and convicted that this is one of the biggest cancers in the church in the deep south and the Appalachian south. I don't think it's drunkenness. I think that's tearing a lot of families apart. I don't even think it's pornography, and that is ripping through the church at an increasing rate, right? I don't think it's theft, even though I know a lot of Christians are having a hard time knowing that the money is not theirs, it belongs to God, and how to handle all of that. I don't even think it's that. I think it's moralism, it's legalism, it's behavior modification, it is finding self-sufficiency, I think that's where we're running into the biggest problem. And I'm very, very concerned that masses will probably find the haunting words, I never knew you. One day, I never knew you. But if you look back on their life, the arc of their life, they lived upstanding lives, looking upstanding while doing upstanding things, even in the name of Jesus. Just no experiential love. No experiential love. Now listen, if you're convicted at this point, Right, I've got some good news for you. Because this is typically a point in a sermon, not that I manufactured it to get to this point, but when you hit subjects and topics like this, it's natural for people to start feeling a little bit convicted, like, ah, I don't know if he's talking about me, or I've been drifting, I'm prone to wander. I don't have a deep relationship with Jesus. I, I, don't, I would never call him a friend. Listen, it's actually God's gift to you that you are experiencing that conviction right now. You don't deserve it. It's his kindness to you that you even have that. If you can see drift in your life today, it's because he's been kind enough to show it to you. It's actually what the Puritans would call sight of sin, the very first signature of the gift of repentance to you and to me. So let it encourage you. If you feel convicted today, it means he's already opening up the eyes of your heart to see. Already. This is a kindness and a grace to us. The Spirit is leading us to a better place, a place where we could sit at his feet and have a face-to-face relationship, a deep, nurturing one. Maybe he's doing this with you this morning, right? Maybe. In fact, let me just pray just for a second, all right, just for you. Father, I pray that as we sit and we let this word appraise us, as we let this passage read us, And as we wait for your Holy Spirit to work on our lives, God, that we're very thankful that you were doing this in us, that you were giving us the sight of our drift, that you were leading us to you. And Father, we thank you for calling us friends. We thank you for approaching us in that way, that you are so loving and so kind. Your proximity is very intimate with us. Amen. So, Just to pivot from here, whenever we realize that we're getting cold and mechanical and we're drifting and we we don't hear this or feel this fire burning within us, we we typically want to change. This is typically at the point where we're wanting to change, and and, and, and it's good, and some of these changes need to happen for certain. They're usually outward. They're usually more mechanical. Um, Sometimes they're public. Sometimes they're drastic changes. Let me just give you a caution on how we change, right? Be cautious of just trying to add more knowledge about God in this new path that you would chart for yourself. 
Because this is a trap that we fall into. It's a a big one, to be honest with you. Jesus never accused Ephesus of not being knowledgeable enough. Just of losing their first love. Letting that slip away. At some point, they left the feet of Jesus and they went and looked them up on Wikipedia instead. Mental expansion was big. Their head was growing. Their chest was shrinking. That's what was happening. And here's where I feel like we get jammed up church in America specifically. I think we prize intellectual growth over emotional growth, IQ over EQ, right? In fact, it's easy to look down on people who are purposing themselves after growing and connecting with God experientially. We kind of degrade that a little bit, and I think we do this because it's very difficult. It's difficult for us to sit at Jesus' feet and just relent control and just be a friend and nurture something like that. Living face-to-face, it just means subsiding, means giving up our mastery of God as our subject. It means waiting. It means being vulnerable. It means being quiet, listening. It means being still when we could be moving. In fact, we don't even really know what to expect in those times, do we? Whether God is going to say something, whether he's not. What it even means to, for, for God to say something? Do we create that moment? Does God create it? What, what exactly happens? That's tough. That's mysterious. And mystery is the opposite of mastery. Mastery is what we want, not mystery. We want to know where the edges of God are. We don't want his mystery. Charles Spurgeon says this. This has been a helpful quote for me over the years as a pastor to a pastor. He says, Quietude, which some men cannot abide, because it reveals their inward poverty, is as a palace of cedar to the wise. For along its hallowed courts, the king in his beauty deigns to walk. And quiet is hard because it does expose who we really are to ourselves. It's this place of experience and unscripted friendship that's not easy for us. We want to master God intellectually by understanding him, by understanding everything with no mystery. We want to master this subject, not enjoy the intimate friendship. And I know this feels irresponsible for many people. And I know some of you feel uncomfortable just by me speaking to the level that I've already spoken. And I understand you if you're there. Listen, because I used to be this guy, study notes guy, right? I'd never own a Bible unless it had study notes. And, I, and, it, and it needed to be a Bible where the study notes went like halfway up the page, right? With all the footnotes and cross-references and needed to have all the experts there. And you'd find me, I'd be the guy that would tell you that what your youth pastor probably taught you was likely wrong. Or what the, the last church you went to probably taught a, a little bit of a bad doctrine, but I was going to help you out, right? I was going to wow you with all of my theological understanding and, and apologetics you to death and blah, 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 right? And I would look down at the same time on the people that were trying to connect with God looking for their hearts to burn, looking to be friends with God. I would think that they could go have their weepy, precious moments in the corner, but I'll be busy over here being the expert of everything. And maybe it was my personality, right? I would hear them use words like soaking in God. I still can't say it without feeling a little odd inside. Soaking in God or or connecting, resting, sitting it, 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 just, it conjures images of them being barefoot, right, with music in the background or finger painting or something like that or, or, or finger painting with their feet, you know, and I just didn't want anything to do with it. It just felt so soft and lightweight and probably heretical all at the same time. 
And I'll be honest, there was a lot of weirdness in the people that I would struggle with, but I was probably more wrong than right, probably, because all I would do is just maybe the same thing you do, as deputize the Holy Spirit to do nothing but bring you facts, factoids, right? And it's true, the, the Holy Spirit illuminates the word to us will lift something right off the pages of the Bible. That thing that you've read a thousand times, you've cruised through. Not bad, just not life-changing. Kind of B-minus as far as an emotional impact on you. It's a good word, but you've read it a million times. Until God, by his design, decides that this one millionth and first time is going to be the time that it changes your life forever. It just pops off the page and it ruins you. That's illumination. That's what the Holy Spirit does. But God's Spirit doesn't do this for you so that you can be smarter. He does it so you can be closer. Closer. The Holy Spirit was not given to you so that you would know more facts than you did last year, but so that you'd be closer than you were last year. It's not bad to know facts, by the way. Seminary is not bad. It's not bad to know Greek. It's not bad to be an expert. It's not bad to have knowledge. But Jesus did not send you a helper so that your IQ would swell while you had a cold heart in your chest. Because we just don't handle the word of God. We don't handle the truth of God like a, a manual for a blender or something like that. Facts to be known. But it's a love letter written from a friend to a friend about some really good news. The Holy Spirit was gifted to us, not just so we could spot the heretics around us, which this church was really good at, but so that we could spot the heretic in ourselves. I'm just like you. I've got Ephesian blood running in me. I'm prone to wander. For sure. Paul's praying for me in this passage. He's praying for you. He's praying for us to know God, not just know about God, right? So how do we turn? How do we do this? How do we return to our first love and see him face to face, right? That's the big question. I think the answer is very simple, probably too simple. And it's just rest in Jesus and pursue him as a friend. I mean, how do you, how do you build friends? Create space. You guard that space. You place value on that time. You do it regularly. You give yourself to it. You relent. It's how we build friends. You know, because we have some really good news when it comes to being a friend with God. We sit at the feet of Jesus because he sits at the right hand of his Father. I mean, think about the, how the passage even explains it. Christ was raised, he was seated above all, all is underneath him, and this is good news because you were able to sit at his feet and he calls you friend, a face-to-face -face friend, not just a friend, a face-to-face -face one. You see, this is a part of the gospel story. It's not just a part of the gospel story. I, I mean, it's a big part of the, of the gospel story. The gospel is, yes, that Jesus took his perfect obedience, his perfect flawless morality, marched it up to the cross for the joy that was in him and traded it for our flawed humanity and flawed morality, and he did that, imputing a righteousness to us that we did not deserve, right? That's true. Defeating sin on the cross. And then he robs the grave by coming out of the ground, coming out of a grave, and he beats death. And and the same Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead and moved him to the right hand of God, the most prominent place, is alive in you and me. That's good news. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit. In fact, there's the last passage I'd like to look at is one we barely touched last week. I knew we'd get another shot at it this week. It's in 1 Corinthians 2. So I'm going to turn there. It'll be up there on the screen as well. 1 Corinthians 2. And I'm going to jump down to verse 10. 
These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Verse 10, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So no one, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Okay, pause for a minute. What you probably want to know when you go into a passage like this is consider how we miscommunicate with each other. It's because we can't read each other's minds, right? I mean, our mind, we have a thought of what we're trying to say, and by the time it makes it out to our mouth and through what we call words, it never really comes out like the way we wanted it to, and they definitely don't pick it up like what we intended. So miscommunication, and that happens over and over again. And we always wish that they could just read our mind and we could read their mind, right? Because that would just get rid of miscommunication. We would all be on what they call the same page. Consider what Paul is saying here. He's saying it's the Holy Spirit that knows the depths of even the thoughts of God. And he's given to you. He's given to you. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. That we might understand. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. This is called illumination. It's God opening up our hearts to see. See what? The things that have been freely given to us including friendship. I mean, this is, this is how we sit at his feet and say with those disciples, didn't our hearts burn within us? Didn't our hearts burn within us whenever we heard him teach, whenever we saw him in the scriptures, whenever we felt his ministry? You know, I only have one application for this really today, and that is <clears throat> basically to return to the places, just as they are told in the book of Revelation, to return to the place where their heart burns and to develop a relationship, a face-to-face -face relationship with God. And we mentioned this two weeks ago, the idea of a spiritual discipline, okay? Spiritual discipline, if you weren't here, all it is is a rhythm or a moment or a practice that fosters and creates an environment where you connect relationally with God. It could be fasting, it could be prayer, it could be journaling, it could be retreat, it could be solitude. In fact, we saw two weeks ago that there are some books that have 75 to 100 different examples of different spiritual disciplines. Mike Cosper wrote a book called Recapturing the Wonder that talks about some of these spiritual disciplines. And he says the reason it's important that we iron these disciplines into our lives is because we live in a world where there are disciplines for disenchantment. We are moved away from being enchanted. We live in a world of just practicing disenchantment with God. So a spiritual discipline reverses that a little bit. And when you return to the feet of God and create that space with him, that is not an obligation. It's, it's an invitation. It's not an obligation, it's an invitation. It's not a box to check so that you can make an angry friend happy with you again. It's something that's offered from one friend to another to build a better relationship. It's important that you understand that your starting place is grace, not obligation, not obligation. So before you create this master plan for returning to your first love and sitting at his feet, ask the question why. Is it to make God less angry with you or is it to build a friendship with God? and nurture and develop something with a good friend who has apprehended you before you ever apprehended him. You know, we've mentioned the last couple weeks that next week we start a class up here. It'll be at 8.30. It'll be where we always have our classes down the hall. But it's just on spiritual disciplines. 
For the next three weeks, I'm going to cherry pick maybe six or seven of the ones that have been most helpful for me over the years. We're going to practice them, and we're going to teach them. Because if you want to build disciples, having a good, a good routine and a good practice of spiritual disciplines, ones that you're comfortable with and ones that stretch you a little bit, that's the fastest way to build friendship with God. So I'm excited about that. Listen, but I'll just give you one, and then we're done. And that is just silence and solitude, right? And that's actually not even a spiritual discipline, by the way. I'm throwing that out there as if it is. It's actually what they call container discipline, right? It's, silence and solitude is, is what should hold your spiritual disciplines. If you're journaling or praying or singing or writing a song or you're meditating or you're, you're praying the Psalms, you're, you're picking any of these different disciplines to really nurture your affections for Jesus, to do it in a place of quietude, in solitude, in silence is very important. To separate yourself from the noise of culture and the static of culture in a guarded place where you could be doing something, but you're not. You're sitting at his feet. Now, that's what's hard for us, though. That's why a lot of us, we struggle with our spiritual disciplines. It's not because doing things is hard. It's because doing things in silence and solitude and quietude. Now, that's hard. That's why some of you are experiencing what's called phantom ringer, right? Have you ever noticed that? You're in the shower, you're on a run, and you feel a vibration on your leg, and you think, oh, it's my phone, right? It's called ringsiety. We are not used to, we are not used to being in silence and undistracted. We're not used to spending more than three minutes in that time. But it's important. And it's from this place, as difficult as it is to find, that we create an environment for friendship building. Listen, if you're not good at this, and you struggle with prayers that are over three minutes long, if you're not good at this and journaling is a joke to you, or you struggle with this and you just don't think it's worth it, you may learn facts about God but your heart's never going to burn inside your chest. It's not going to happen. You'll always have a big head and a small chest, right? If you're not practiced at these things and have an experiential relationship with God, what will you tell your neighbor when they ask you the gritty questions? Are you going to tell them hypotheticals? Are you going to have to introduce them to somebody else you know that does have a vital, beautiful relationship with God? Because listen, they don't care what you know. They want to know where you've been. They want to know who you've talked to, who you've apprehended, who's apprehended you, who you've cried with. They want to know who you know, not just know about, but who you know. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to get out of this sermon. Jeremiah 6 says something beautiful. He says, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. These paths are ancient. You don't have to have an app for it. You don't have to read a book for it. These are time-tested. Just finding a quiet place where you can ask the Holy Spirit to give you view of God and to set your heart on fire, that you'd have a face-to-face, Coromdale relationship with God. So what's going to happen now as the team comes out is we'll have worship and we have the communion elements in the back and as we are growing more accustomed to saying, listen, that is for the church, not just legacy church, but if you are a, a brother or sister in Christ from another church, those elements are for you. But listen, if you are a skeptic or a searcher and you would not say that you are a lover of Jesus, we, would, we just suggest you not take the communion elements, that you take Jesus instead. 
that you would take him. But for those of you who are taking communion, ask yourself, what is most missing in how you interact with God? What is most missing? What kind of place have you created for building friendships? What rhythms have you built? Is God your friend? Does your heart burn? Because the broken body and the spilt blood that we see represented in those elements, it's a receipt and it's a reminder that you are sitting at the right hand or you're sitting at the one who's sitting at the right hand, but you're a friend and he sees you as friends. He calls you friends. And if you're far from God, I'm just gonna ask you, is your heart being pulled and moved towards God? Are you feeling something draw you? If you do, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. You're not that smart. You're not that talented, you're not that wise. God is doing that in you right now. All you can really contribute to that is your need in this moment. I'm gonna pray for you in just a moment. But just submit to what the Spirit's doing. Because traditionally we're people that carry a high view of self and a low view of God. And it gives us a lot to pray for. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And I do pray for the lives in here, Father, who are far from you, that you would draw them close, that you would rescue their hearts, that you would grab them with both hands and let them know and testify to their spirit that they are children of God. And Lord, that as we worship you, that our hearts would, would say to you, make me on fire again. Open up the eyes of my heart. Awaken my affections that I would experience you. Lord, that we would not be a church like Ephesus in the way of just knowing things about you and being able to spot garbage and heresy whenever we see it and just even having really great endurance, but then abandoning our first love, that that would not be said of us, that that would not be said of me or my family. So we ask for your spirit to change us we love you and we thank you for this time and we worship you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. They're much deeper. And listen, if you are far from Jesus, maybe like I said, you're searching. Maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe you had something that happened at that one church camp at that one time, but you're not really sure anymore. You know, I mean, wherever you're at, but you, you know that you know that you do not have a firm step-in-step -step quorum deo life with God. Let me ask you, I'm going to load you with a different question. Not why did God choose me, but has God chosen me? That sounds a little bit more odd, I know. But I will repeat that invitation is sincere for you to walk through the door. It's open. It's without restriction. If you do not, your condemnation, the destruction, it's on your head. But if you do, you can rejoice that your name was written in the book of life since before seconds even began to tick. Right? Let me pray for all of you. And then they'll come out and lead us in worship. Father, we thank you for being so sweet to us and so kind to us. Father, I thank you that you considered us before we even knew what consideration was. And Lord, we repent as a church for approaching these things of mystery where we don't understand just because we can't understand. Lord, I mean, to understand your ways would be to make us a God. That's what it would take. But Lord, we come to your mystery and we walk right up to it and then we, out of our own rebellious nature, say we know better and you're doing it wrong and you are cold and mechanical and I don't like it. And we build our own independence. And for that, we repent. And Father, we beg your spirit to give us view of how 
beautiful your gospel is and what it has done for us. Lord, that we just can't go from day to day without just relishing on the fact of how, how thoughtful you were for us. Totally despite us. That you rescued us just because you love us. And it's for your glory. And it is for your honor. So Lord, I pray that you break hearts in here. Both hearts that need to repent and hearts that are coming to you. I pray that you would rend hearts, that you would pull hearts apart and take even dead hearts out and put live, responsive, beating hearts in people. Even today, that salvation would be found today. We love you, Lord, and you are so kind to us, and you are so good, and we, we trust you. We trust you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. On the cross, the empty tomb, the grace given to us, that we would gain sight of that. And Father, that we'd have a satisfaction that when we leave here today, it's not that we leave with an idea of what we need to try harder on or what we need to do better with, but we leave here with a sense of how awesome you are and how content we are in you how satisfied we are in you. So we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name that we celebrate. Amen.